Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to 51 First Dates. I'm Liza. And I'm Kimmy. And we are doing an experiment. And talking about dating. And love. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Hi, everybody. I'm and Liza. I'm Kimmy, and this is 51 First Dates, a podcast about dating and stuff. Uh, <laughs> Oh, what an intro. But actually, I am incredibly excited for today's episode. Liza, are you excited as well? Always, but especially Especially today. today. We actually just finished recording with Logan Yuri. She is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach. She wrote How to Not Die Alone, a book that we have actually shouted out on this podcast before. She's also the director of relationship science at Hinge um, and really does some incredibly interesting work around relationships and data and science and just has incredible frameworks that are really, really unique and interesting and really look at uh, relationships and dating in a very new way. So we were so lucky to have her. Thank you again so much to Logan. Um, We will get into that conversation shortly, but Liza, maybe there are some new people here. Should we give a a quick spiel? The quickest spiel in the whole world. What is this podcast? Why is it called an Adam Sandler movie? This podcast is a dating experiment, but not like a real one, like the kind that Logan does. (laughs) (laughs) It is, this podcast started when Kimmy was single and felt in a dating rut and wanted to really challenge herself. And so she decided to go on a bunch of first dates and we came up with 51 for tons of mysterious reasons you can go back and listen from the from the beginning it's i'm just kidding it's not that cool but you should go back and listen um kimmy met her amazing boyfriend going on dates on this podcast and since then we've brought on um a few other regular daters so we hear from our current regular dater carlin every couple episodes and then we talk to really cool experts like logan so we're a mix of talking about first dates with our regular dater and experts um, talking about dating in general. And also we like to drink and be drunk feminists <laughs> and also be mad about the patriarchy and um, bitch and moan. And uh, that's what it is. That is what How did I do? Is. That wasn't that short. No, it was, it was, I think it was great, Liza. It was very honest, you know, <laughs> it was full of radical transparency about what we end up talking about here. But uh, thank you to our OGs as well. We love you. Thank you for writing reviews. Thank you for subscribing to our newsletter, Precious Gems, where we, I mean, it really lies over treating the internet like our diary and it's free and it's on Substack. Just Google Precious Gems Substack and you can, you can uh, subscribe to those. I, I feel that they're fun. I feel that I... When I can think about my thoughts more than just spitting them out at a microphone, I, I do a little better. I'm a little more articulate. I will just say that. Yeah, it's very fun for us to write. It's it's like a little bit more of a view into our our solo heads about things that are usually like dating adjacent, but sometimes not even about dating, um, although often about dating. But if you feel like hearing more from us, you can get it for free there. And also we break, we always um, write out and link our consumption corners there, which we 
will do now. It's our new, it, it was our COVID. Um, we started doing Consumption Corner during COVID, and I think we're just going to keep doing it because people seem to be enjoying it. And um, we like talking about media. Yeah, I'm still watching a lot of content, even though the world or the United States has has opened up more. Um, oops, love content. Am I on the couch? <laughs> Before we dive in, I also just... Liza, I was I don't know how you feel, but you're if you're listening to this when it comes out, it's the Tuesday after a, a long weekend. And I had a moment today where I was like, I, I think I'll beat myself up about not getting enough done on this long weekend. And then I thought, it's vacation for a reason. You're supposed to rest and take the day off so that you can complain about the work you do at other times. Um, and we're even recording, so but I just I just wanted to shout out to anyone having the most scaries or feeling like they partied too much or they, oh, what did I text that thing? Or that they just like were too lazy. Like, frankly, I sat, I lied around all day yesterday. So I would just say, be nice to yourself. Vacation and rest is there for a reason. We absolutely need it. Um, And I don't know why I wanted to say that, but I did. A hundred percent. I feel the exact same way. Even like the weather hasn't been super great in the Northeast. And I was like, great, I'm going to bring two books and I'm going to just like read all weekend and like I'll be, you know, novels, like stuff that's relaxing. But even then I was like setting myself an assignment of like, I haven't really been reading. I'm in a book. I'm in the middle of a book. I'm going to finish this book. I'm going to finish another book. It's going to be like, great. I'm going to get so much reading done. And like, I have not cracked a single book this weekend, except for Logan's actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, I was like being mean to myself about that. And then I was just like, that's it's just funny. Like, why am I bullying myself about the way in which I relax? And yeah, I no, it's a great reminder. It's so, it's especially as like the world is opening up and we're like busier all of a sudden. I've been feeling very much that of like, I have to be doing stuff all the time. Yes. Uh, and I'm just, I get so exhausted doing any one thing. I did one thing this weekend that was social and I'm exhausted still. You yeah. Know? Same. I don't want to do anything. I know. It's really remarkable. I was kind of like a, like, I mean, I was extremely lazy before, but the pandemic really (laughs) has boosted my laziness quotient seven or eight percent. It taught us new levels of laziness. Okay. Speaking of that. I'm so lazy that I couldn't even come up with a good analogy for how lazy I am. I bailed in the middle of that seven or eight percent analogy. and was like, eh, I'm not going to And that, and you are perfect still. And (laughs) that is, you know, you taking care of yourself. Okay, let's do it. Liza, what have you been watching? Consumption Corner. I can't. This is why I felt guilty about not reading. (laughs) I'm finally getting deep into... I think it's season 12 of Real Housewives of New York. I think it's last Ooh. season, not the one currently on yeah, TV. It's really the bad mo- right the, now. The most recent one on Hulu. Okay. Yeah. And and it's I watched New York seasons in early days, maybe the first like two or four two to four seasons. I like watched, you know, like pretty regularly and I haven't watched it since then and oh man, am I in it. <laughs> like it's great. There were some people I was like, oh, there's no originals left from like when I watched. And I was like, oh, they are. They just have totally different faces now. Yeah. Um, Ramona, Luann, they will never will die. <laughs> like They will never go fully. Not that I, sorry, not that not I would ever want them to them. die. I just mean like they're staying on that show till till the end of time. Fully that came out. wrong. But I didn't recognize either of them right away. No shade. I've gotten Botox myself. But it's they both know. look so good on this season right now, too. Like I, I am not a fan of yeah. Ramona. I'm not really a either of them but I I I I 
have an appreciation for Luann, uh, but they both look fucking stunning on this on this yeah. new, latest season, which is crap otherwise, in my opinion. But yeah, they are both. I mean, Luann Luann's bod on oh season God. twelve is so good, and also like I just really enjoy Ramona's fashion. Not all the time, but I just feel like it's like I love that she's just like tits out, fucking <laughs> conquer the world. It's I don't know. It's really doing it for me. I always cycle through the Housewife seasons. Like, I was in a big Beverly Hills kick, and I was like, oh, fuck this. I can't do it anymore. And I, like, that particular brand of intensity was getting old, and now, like, the New York brand of intensity is, like, working Mm -hmm. for me. So, honestly, that's been mostly what I've watched, and I really wish I had one highbrow thing to stick into this conversation, and I do not. I'm proud of you. I mean, I've been watching a show about dicks. No, I've been watching Dave on FX, well, on Hulu, um, which, Liza, have you seen Dave? I haven't. It's been on my list for such yeah, a long time. Yeah, it's good. It's I just got into the second season. It's Little Dicky, who, if you don't know him, is like a YouTube rapper and personality, and it's very much centered on his story. But it's it's they did a good job. I mean, it's an FX show or FXX, whatever it is. It's real. Like the guest cameos are funny. It's about you know Little Dicky getting famous, <laughs> rapping about dicks, and so you think this is not designed for me, but it it gets in some to some really interesting. Ep- there's a bottle episode ar- around mental illness that is really good and yeah I I, I recommend it um also short episodes so I it's just been a nice like you know in between like there's depth there but I also can laugh and yeah um yeah oh and read the Ronan Farrow uh Gia Tolentino New Yorker article about Britney what is it called that's the only highbrow thing I've read but it was very good oh my god it's, I mean it's harrowing I- but I haven't read it yet, but it's been, I've been trying to like set aside, like, you know, I want to like set aside a time where I can like read it in one sitting and give it my focus. And I've like been at my parents' house with my like toddler niece and all of this stuff. So I haven't like done it, but uh, I am, I I read, you know, like a couple excerpts from it and I was like, this is going to be very, very intense. It's very intense. It's harrowing. Like it was harrowing to hear from her. This is, it's just, yeah, it's, I, I mean, this is not the podcast that covers things like that, but I still can't believe this is happening and happening to such a famous person. So you can only imagine. Like they in the article, they talk about how were she, had they caught Britney with an axe having just murdered someone, she'd have more of a right to her own representation in like a real way without control around it than she does right now, which to me is like, it's, it's insane. so backwards. Yeah. Uh, the fact that she's paying her, the salary of her yeah. conservator, his insanely high salary, is just so nauseating. It, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's bonkers. Okay, but let's get into our conversation with Lo- Logan. We, I think this will be a really great episode um, for for all anyone listening. <laughs> but truly, we talk about everything from you know first dates and early dating to breaking up, and we answer a lot of the questions you sent in. So thank you, and it was great to have Logan here with her excellent advice versus us kind of trying to figure it out uh, as we go. Uh, and yeah, we were just so excited for you to check out this episode and follow us. <laughs> thank you for following us. I'm so Thank good at promotion. Us. Rate, subscribe, yes. review, all of it. At 514 States Pod on everything. Eh. And we are going to take a really quick ad break and then we'll be back with our interview with Logan Yuri. Okay, we are so excited to be joined by Logan Yuri. Um, 
we have wanted to have you on for so long and so excited we made this happen. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to dive into your book, How to Not Die Alone, as well as just your work. Um, you know, we've been learning so much through your book and also just, you know, thinking about data and relationships in different ways. And I think it, it'll be a really exciting chat to have. You also have kind of the ultimate endorsement from Esther Perel. Uh, yeah, the definitive guide to modern dating, basically. So we're just extremely excited. Um, but kind of for our listeners who are less familiar with your career path, you were a behavioral scientist at Google. You turned into a dating coach. You have this amazing book. Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey? Because it is a unique one. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I feel really lucky to have been able to forge this unique career path, combining the things that I'm interested in. And so for a long time, I've been interested in psychology. And then I've also had an interest in sex, dating, and relationships. And so from the psychology perspective, that has turned into jobs that have to do with the field of behavioral science. So the study of how we make decisions. And so at Google or at other tech companies that looked like, how do we get people to open this email or sign up for this app? Or even how do we get employees to you know, drink more water or go on, mo go on more walking meetings? Like how do we affect human behavior? But because I've always been so interested in dating and relationships, I wondered how could I apply this to that field and help people make better decisions in dating and relationships? And so I went from working at Google, then I was briefly at Airbnb, then I was like, I love this stuff, I wanna see if I can do it full time. And I quit my job and have just for the last, you know, however many years been figuring out how to turn this into a career. And so that looked like doing a residency at TED, doing some original research on breakups and giving a TED talk, then having the opportunity to write my book, which came out in February. And then for the last year and a half, I've been working as the director of relationship science at Hinge. And that's a really awesome job because I'm super close to the data. I'm really involved in research projects. And it's, it's great to be someone like me who's been learning about relationships theoretically, learning about relationships one-on-one -on -one through dating coaching, but then now having access to that amount of data and to be able to see like, well, what's happening all over the world with these trends and doing kind of that big data analysis. And so it's just been so fun to see my career kind of go step by step where I didn't know where I would wind up, but just by following my passion and being like, okay, these are the things that interest me. This is what I'm good at. This is the unique angle that I can bring the behavioral science piece. How can I turn this into something? And so I feel really lucky that I basically get to talk about dating all the time and that's my job. That's so cool. That's so inspirational. It's like, uh, that's the, I feel like the dream um, career trajectory. So this is, uh, in terms of, this is like a very broad question, but in terms of behavioral sciences, do you find that our brains, our behaviors work similarly in dating and outside of dating? Like, do we have different specific behaviors that dating brings out in us? Yeah, this is this is a great question. And I, I was just rewatching some old speeches that I gave. I'm working on some sizzle reel and I was rewatching one from a few summers ago. And there was a line that my husband wrote that I really like, which is like, we are irrational and nowhere are we more irrational than in matters of the heart. And I think that's so true. And so in other words, what that means is um, our behavior 
we often act against our own best interests. And so really common examples in behavioral science are trying to help people save more money, right? People say they want to save money, but they have a really hard time budgeting. People say they want to lose weight, but they have a hard time getting to the gym or eating healthier. And so it's like, yeah, we have these really clear goals and we get in our own way. And so that's the general premise of behavioral science. But then you add in all the identity pieces and sort of what we perceive as the magic of love and dating, and it exacerbates it. And so I would say the same cloudy ways of thinking, the same cognitive biases that affect us in all parts of life affect us in love. But perhaps it's the most intense because it's something that um, has a lot of emotional stakes. It involves our entire identity. It involves really harsh rejection. It's something that we have a lot of cultural baggage around. And so I'd say, yes, it's the same as in other areas, but to an even more intense degree. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I think what is really fascinating about your work um, at Hinge and and also your book is just adding this kind of, it's so trite, but it's an art and a science, like adding this science to something that might feel more emotional typically and adding frameworks like the three dating tendencies. And I'm just curious, you know, in releasing How to Not Die Alone, you know, if you've sometimes, you know, we launched this podcast based on a like a dating experiment, quote unquote, not super scientific, I will say, but, you know, putting a framework around some challenges I was having in dating, quite frankly. I'm curious if you, because sometimes we get a little pushback around like, you know, does does looking at it scientifically or, and we weren't scientific, but through some of these frameworks or processes, does it, does it make it unromantic or is it about settling? I'm curious just what your response is if you've received any kind of some skeptical comments around, you know, is there a science here? Oh yeah, I've definitely gotten skeptical responses. I try not to read internet comments, but mm-hmm. some slipped through the cracks and I saw one that was just like, oh, who is this woman trying to turn love into this rational thing? And actually, that's not really what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to say you should be rational in love. I'm saying understand that your irrationality is holding you back and here are ways where you're going to make a mistake. And so, for example, there's something called the present bias, which is just we really focus on the here and now and it's hard for us to prioritize the future or ourselves in the future. And so that's one of the reasons why it's hard to save money because, right, it just feels really good to spend money now versus saving for retirement. And so in love, that might look like dating the hot guy who's not that nice to you but is exciting versus dating the guy who's going to be the great long-term partner. And so what I like to think about is dating and relationships are some of the most important things in our lives. Relationships in general are hugely impactful on our health, happiness, overall life satisfaction. And so why wouldn't we take what we know about the world and study it and apply it, right? We do this in all aspects of life. If you were um, trying to get healthier, you might learn about nutrition. If you were trying to train for a marathon, you might learn about different running techniques. And so we have this field of relationship science, the study of how love works, how attraction works, et cetera. Why wouldn't we take what we know and apply it? And so I actually, I, I do get that a lot. And what I just say is when something is so important, why wouldn't we use all of the skills that we have at hand? And so applying a scientific lens to help people overcome bad habits, I think that's some of the most important work that we could do. Yeah, I mean, we agree. It's very, very exciting. Uh, And did you have like a moment, a spark moment or like a superhero origin story to when you decided you wanted to write this book? Did you like see something or experience something where you were like, oh my God, like I I know I can help people do better than this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, 
You know, I've always had this, I've had this interest for a really long time, but a lot of people are interested in dating, right? Like who doesn't love talking to their friends about dating? So at a certain point where it's like, how is this something special? Or how is this something that I can do something unique in this field? And so I'm trying to remember back, but basically I was at Google and I had this platform of talks at Google where I would bring in different people to, I would moderate a discussion with them. And basically people would come in for free because it was a fun experience. You got a tour of the Googleplex. And so I had really cool people like Gretchen Rubin and Ira Glass, people I really admired. And so I spoke to a friend who was she wasn't my coach, but she was going through coaching training. And I was like, yeah, I want to write a book on dating and relationships. And she's like, that's really big. Why don't you start small? And she was like, what platform do you have available to you? And I had this toxic Google platform. And so I don't know that I was thinking about it as a pilot, but it kind of was a pilot. It was bringing in different people like Dan Savage, Esther Perel, Dossie Easton, who wrote The Ethical Slut. And bringing in people like that and having these conversations with them. And I just felt like there was something there. I was like, when I started advertising this, a thousand people at Google joined the list in a few days and people were really passionate about the events. They couldn't believe that we were talking about polyamory at work, Mm -hmm. that we're talking about, you know, how to maintain desire in a long-term relationship. And so it was just that feeling of there's something here. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but I was like, there's a very strong need. People are struggling. People need help. And I feel like the angle that I have, which is that scientific angle, bringing in the academic research, bringing in the behavioral science, I felt like that was very useful. And so when I think about my strengths and weaknesses as a writer, a researcher, a thinker, I feel like my biggest strength is really being a translator, being that person in between the academic world saying really smart people are thinking about this, but they may not be writing accessible books. And then millions of people are struggling and they need help. How can I bring the best ideas, translate them, come up with cute, memorable terms for them, and actually take all the great work that's been doing, that's been done scientifically and make it accessible so that people can really learn and integrate and ideally change their behavior. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I think that, you know, what comes out in the book and, you know, conversations we've heard you have on other podcasts is just how the data points to things around attraction and who Mm -hmm. we should be with that are just not what we were taught by society or expect based on other, other, you know, depictions of love and, and romance, even though we've witnessed in our own lives. You know, my parents were married super young. And so I thought it was just an easy, you fall in love and then it happens beautifully. And I think, you know, we've got we got some questions specifically um, at, want, wanting us to ask you about in your work more broadly. Do you have you found that opposites attract or people, you know, and I think we know some of this because we read the book, but or that people, you know, are more like who are more like minded um, end up working out better. Yeah, I I like this question a lot. When I was writing my book, I sat with my friend who worked for the Gottman Institute at the time. And on a whiteboard, I just went through all of the, what would you call like old wives tale or like Mm -hmm. common myths around dating. And so as I made this list, I was like, for every aspect of relationship, there's basically conflicting information. So there's um, opposites attract, and then there's birds of a feather, flock together and then there's you have to be a complete person before you start dating or this person is going to complete you and you can go through many many stages of relationships and find these conflicting ideas and so for this one in particular that you're asking about 
It's not that there's a general rule. It's not that people who are similar can't be together. But one of the mistakes that I've seen people make is thinking that you have to be the same as your partner. And it's almost a form of, I don't know, maybe it's narcissism. Maybe it's as you get older, you become more stubborn and set in your ways. And so you're like, well, this is the way I am. I want this other person to be that way. But it's very common for people to say, I'm super extroverted. My girlfriend's introverted. This will never work. Or, you know, I love um, to travel and my partner doesn't and therefore we're not a good match. And sort of assuming that you need to have identical hobbies and identical personalities and the my perspective on this is that it's much more what side of you does that person bring out. Mm -hmm. And so if someone similar brings out a really happy, grounded, secure side of you, that's great. If someone who's really different from you brings that out, that's great. And so looking at it not from what is the bio data of that other human and what's my resume and do we go together, but really that in-between space that emerges when the two of us are together, does that feel good for me? And going by that, not just who they are on paper or what their objective personality is. Yeah, we're always like, and this is what your book is so good at kind of capturing is just railing against that idea of the on paper things. And I know, you know, with Burning Man and your yeah. own experiences, you had those kind of, you know, those what one might call a deal breaker. Um, can you share for our, our audience who hasn't read the book yet a little more about like a deal breaker versus a nice to have and maybe how to practically sure. apply that when you're when you're swiping and trying to reframe how you're looking at these these ideas? Yeah, absolutely. And this really goes along well with what we're talking about in terms of people's perceptions of what they need versus what they actually need. And so in the book, I tell this story about a woman who came up to me at a networking event who I believe she was around 35. And she was like, Logan, I really feel ready to find someone. I want to meet my person. I'm super open to meeting, to meeting anyone as long as he's not a mouth breather. And at the time, I was just like, what? Like, what's a mouth breather? But I've thought about it a lot because, you know, in some ways she was just being funny. It was like, oh, look at me. Like, I have this silly line. But in other ways, I was like, I think she really means that. Like, she has connected herself to this idea that, like, that's just something that she couldn't live with. And so a deal breaker, a real deal breaker, is something that long term would just the relationship would not work. And so if you want to raise your kids in a certain religion and your partner doesn't believe in that religion or wants to raise kids in a different religion, if you really want to move back to Australia and your partner's from the U.S. and they want to stay here, if you have very different views on money or gender roles, anything like that, that could be a real deal breaker. But so often people confuse permissible pet peeves, so something that annoys you, for a real deal breaker. And so absolutely, being a mouth breather, that is a permissible pet peeve, something that bothers you, but you could get over. And so there's lots of things that people make this mistake with. I've had women who say, oh, I went on a date with this guy. He was great, but he wore socks with sandals. I just couldn't see him again. Or even he didn't pay for the the bill. We split the bill, something like that. And so it's like, yeah, maybe that wasn't your favorite thing. And we could talk about that for a while. But just understanding that things that you're putting in the category of a permissible, things that you're putting in the category of a deal breaker may either be a permissible pet peeve or there's this category of nice to have, which is something that you don't absolutely need, but in an ideal world, you would have it. And so I really like this exercise of helping people identify um, this thing that annoys me, do I really need it? 
can I live without it? And is it actually just a pet peeve disguised as a deal breaker? Yeah. Yeah. It's so smart because I feel like so, so often that is what frustrates me when I'm talking to friends who are dating. It's like, oh, I just like, he has this thing. And I'm like, oh my God, like, can we get over it? And then when I was single and dating, I did that so so much. And it's, it's something that like when you're in it, it's, it's, it can be hard to like parse those things out. But speaking about, I feel like this is semi-related. I'm going to build a bridge to it. It may take a couple sentences. Um, <laughs> when we're talking about, you also, I think, talk a lot about unrealistic expectations and like how common they are uh, amongst people who are dating. Can you talk a little bit about um, about the difference between unrealistic expectations and like standards like having clear ideas of what you want so I'm almost talking about maybe like one level up in importance from the pet peeve things the like this person isn't ambitious you know what I mean is that uh where where and how can you kind of find those lines in like the big personality traits in terms of like looking for someone to build a life with yeah absolutely and so I think about this a lot in terms of my whole framework, the three dating tendencies, is around the idea that people have unrealistic expectations. But then people are saying, oh, you want me to settle? You think that I should just uh, be with anyone, settle for good enough? And so I don't want to give up on this dream. And so there really is this kind of gray area in between having unrealistic expectations, having too low of expectations. And so what's that thing in between? What's that sweet spot? And so my philosophy on this is that you should have high expectations, but around the right things, the things that matter. And so, for example, I was working with a woman last week who her tendency is that she tends to actually not be picky enough. She lets people get away with stuff. She doesn't listen to her intuition. She makes excuses. And it comes from a very lovely trait. It comes from compassion and empathy and saying, well, maybe this happened and maybe that happened. And I think that actually has served her very well in life, but it hasn't served her so well in dating because she lets people get away with stuff. And so for her, when a guy said, you know, I'll text you Tuesday to make plans and we'll go out that night. And then she never heard from him. She in from a place of growth drew a boundary and said you know we had a plan you didn't follow it I'm not interested in hanging out again and then he called her the next day to make an excuse but at the end of the day it just didn't matter because for her what she needed to work on was having more boundaries for other people they need to work on um, being more compassionate and so maybe somebody really did have something come up and so for that person it's about saying how can I see it from their perspective or what else could have gone on and so in general the idea is um, you should have high expectations around things like kindness, loyalty, reliability, is this a good person? Does this person make me feel good? Do I like the side of me that they bring out? But then around things that people often have these high expectations around height, weight, career success, we could put similar personalities in this. That's where I would say you can, it's not even lower your expectations, it's be more flexible. And so it's really saying continue to hold people to a high standard, but hold people to a high standard in the category of things that really matter for long-term relationship success. And for the things that are more superficial or shallow, can you be more flexible in those areas? Yeah. Oh, it's such, it's 
such good wisdom. And it almost feels like, how did we not all always think of it this way? And that's just not how it's been framed previously. Um, you know, as much as I knew I used to care in dating about things on on paper, like jobs, and I'd call it ambition, which it, which those do overlap, you know, the way I was looking at it was like letting some guys with cool jobs treat me kind of in a crappy way, like not text me back. So yeah. Um, I kind of around expectations brings me to one of my favorite things from your book is fuck the spark. And so for, yeah, we fully swear here, so I'm just going to go for it. Um, In terms of the idea of fuck the spark, if you've read Logan's book, you're very familiar because I don't know, this just really resonated with me um, versus the slow burn and even your relationship with your husband and how you had met prior, you had met in college and then got together eight years later, I believe. And yeah, I just, I guess, can you talk a little bit about why saying fuck the spark is so important um, or can be yeah. so important? Yeah. And I think, you know, everything we're talking about is is very tied together. And so fuck the spark is sort of an offshoot of this idea of worry more about, um, you know, who this person is long term and the type of connection you can build versus some of the more shallow things. And so fuck the spark is a concept I came up with after having a lot of coaching clients who would go on dates where they had a good time, they enjoyed themselves, the person was engaging, they felt attracted to the person, but they just said, I'm not going to see them again. And when I would say why, they would say, I just didn't feel the spark. And so the spark has become this catch-all term to mean that they didn't feel that Disney movie sense of fireworks, explosions, butterflies in their stomach. And so the issue that I've identified is that people have this very narrow view in their heads of what love looks and feels like. And if they don't have those immediate fireworks, they say, this must not be my person and they keep looking. And so Fuck the Spark is about demystifying that. And the main myths are one, people think that the spark can't grow over time, but that's absolutely not true. People end up marrying somebody that they work with who's been in their friend group for 10 years, who they knew from college, because as you get to know someone, that attraction can grow and you start recognizing all these great things about them, things you maybe didn't realize in the beginning. The second myth is that the spark is always a good thing. And we also know that that's not true. A lot of the most charming people are also very narcissistic. And I'm sure on your show, you talk about love bombing and the fact that people are just so charming because they want you to fall in love with them and to affirm them, but they're not actually serious about you. And so maybe that person's just super sparky and they give a lot of people that feeling of connection and desire, but that's not about something special between you. It's just who they are. And so the spark can actually be the sign of something negative. And then the last myth is that if you have the spark, then the relationship is viable. And many couples who are divorced or broken up or unhappily married once had the spark. And so the spark is enough to get you through the early stages and leads to connection and adventure and good sex, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good match. And a lot of people stay together because they had this romantic how we met story or they had this initial spark, but that isn't necessarily something that carries them on. And that means that they're really a good long-term partner. Yeah. It's why like we've all slept with an ex or maybe not all of us, but <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of us have slept with an ex accidentally and then been like, nope. Um, similarly, like so I I guess this isn't totally similar, but it's just something I'm really excited to talk about. Um, you talk a lot about how to break up in, in your book and you have like a, a big section about 
breaking up, which I think is so important because I struggled with that for so many years. Like when, how, how to really know. And we get a ton of questions about this from listeners, like people emailing being like, I don't know, XYZ is right, but like ABC isn't and I'm just not sure, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I love that you this is included in your book because I feel like it's really like rare. Um, But you talk a little bit about like hitchers versus ditchers, which I yeah. think is like pretty self-explanatory. And I just feel like, especially with kind of like millennial fuckboy culture and so much of, you know, I'm I'm 33 and in the last like 11 years I've lived in New York, I feel like every single one of my female friends, including me, has had a guy, either boyfriend, fuckboy or otherwise, that they just really can't ditch or keep like justifying the behavior of them because they feel like it's important to have that person in some way even if it's not an official relationship and I know people who have done this for years I mean and I've done it and it's not uh it's been so um it's been like a negative thing in a lot of the the women's lives I know so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about this kind of like hitcher mentality like how we can break those patterns if we as I do tend towards hitcher behavior like any advice you might have around that Yeah. So Hitchers and Ditchers, for people who haven't read the book, it's this idea that not everyone, but a lot of people tend to have these patterns where they stay in relationships too long, relationships that have run their course, relationships that don't make them happy, they're bad or they're mediocre, and they they stick around far past the point at which they should have left. And those are Hitchers. And then ditchers are people who don't give relationships a chance. And so they love the beginning of the relationship. They love the new relationship energy and the flirtation and the first dates, but they actually bounce very early on when either things are less fun or um, the honeymoon period is over or even they, they miss going on first dates. And so in the book, I explore why are people like this? And there are certain psychological reasons and looking at behavioral science, there's certain cognitive biases that cause this. And so for the hitchers in particular, there's a few things. There's something called sunk cost fallacy, which is the idea that when we've already put time or effort or resources into something, then we feel like we should continue doing that. So a really common example of this is if a company invests millions of dollars in a project and the project's not doing well, instead of saying, let's call it and invest in something new, they say, oh, well, we've already invested two years and a lot of time and money into this. Let's keep going and try to make it work. And so for a company, that's problematic and expensive, but for a person, this obviously is is very hard because if you are a monogamous person who's dating one person at a time, then you are investing a lot of resources in somebody. And so an example is a guy who called me and said, I've been dating this woman for two and a half years. The first six months were great. The last two years have been bad, but I'm staying with her because I'm hopeful that things will go back to how those first six months were. And so when I hear that, I'm like, okay, the majority of the relationship you've been unhappy, the majority of the time she's been this other person, but instead of just calling it and saying, perhaps in the beginning she was wearing a metaphorical mask or she was pretending to be somebody she wasn't and so were you, he just wanted to stay with her and and see how could he go back to that early phase. And so really what hitchers do is that instead of saying this isn't the right relationship for me they keep hoping that it'll turn around or they just feel like i don't want to leave now because i've already invested so much time yeah so what ends up happening is that 
I work with people in this thing I call breakup consulting, where I really just sit with them and I'm not trying to tell them what to do per se. I'm just reflecting back to them how they feel. And so I ask them the wardrobe task question, which is this idea of if your partner were a piece of clothing in your closet, something that you own, what would they be? And I've heard really wild and varied answers. I've heard my partner is a scrubby t-shirt that I would wear to the gym, but I hope nobody would see me. Or my boyfriend is a wool sweater that keeps me warm, but then itches me, so I want to take it off. And those are obviously some negative ones. Really positive ones might sound like my girlfriend is my favorite pair of pants. Pants I wouldn't have bought for myself, but I'm really glad I have. Or my boyfriend is my favorite pair of leggings, things like that. And so because it's so kind of random and abstract, it helps people get out of their own head and their rational thinking and just tune into how do I truly feel about this person and where is the relationship? And so for hitchers, I like to help them understand the relationship's probably not gonna return to some phase that you had in the beginning. The honeymoon period inevitably ends. I help them try to access how do they feel about the relationship. And then I also work with them on a plan to say, what would need to be true for you to leave this relationship? And sometimes those are things like, I need to know that I gave it a try and I tried everything I could, but it wouldn't work. I need to know that you know it wasn't my fault and, and, and we both gave it our best effort, whatever it is. And so I have met a lot of hitchers who are stuck in relationships that aren't serving them, but they don't know how to get out of it. And the steps are identifying, has this relationship run its course? Why are you sticking around? And then what are the concrete steps you'd need to take to get out of that relationship? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, as you mentioned earlier, you know, around money and around romance and then this sunk cost fallacy. It's just the way they're so connected. Um, I would love to get into some listener questions, Logan, if you're, if you're done. Let's do, do it. Okay. Let's do we it. We could start with a, um, a shorter one. So a listener asked about, is it true? Actually, a couple of people asked this. Is it true that, you know, certain cities are better or worse for dating? Um, we can stick to the U.S. probably for this. Uh, but if you have any global data too, or is that just something that's in our heads that, you know? I, yeah, great question. I have definitely heard this from a lot of people who wherever I am uh, in the U.S. or even internationally, people say, I live in blank city and it's the worst city to date. And they explain why. And so there is a perception that everyone thinks that their city is really hard to date in. And there might be very, there might be different reasons. So in SF, people often say nobody hits on each other in bars, right? So they have a perception that there's not a lot of people meeting in real life. Then you have people who say, oh, I live in a commuter city and nobody really goes out where they work. And so it's really hard to meet people. Then people say, oh, I live in a city that's mostly men. Oh, but it's gay men. Or I live in a city that's more women. And there's just there's often a reason why people think that their cities are the hardest to live in. And just almost as a, as a side point, but this might be interesting to people is I've had a lot of dating coaching clients who travel to another city, open up the apps and then say, oh, I need to move to Phoenix or I need to move to Tulsa. When I opened the apps, I saw all these great people and that's obviously where the best people are. And what they don't understand is that when you're in a new city, dating apps show you a bunch of attractive people in that city who you haven't gone through before and so it feels like you're seeing kind of the best of the best but the truth is that in your city you've already gone through those options and so what you're really just seeing is 
the most attractive people in that city, but that doesn't mean that if you stayed there, there would be an unlimited pool of those people. And so in general, I would say, yeah, certainly some places are harder than others. If you're an LGBTQ+, if you're a person in that community and you live in a city where it's hard to be out, that's absolutely something that could be challenging. Or if you are you know, a South Asian woman who's looking for a South Asian man and there's not a lot of people like that in where you live, that could be challenging. So sometimes it's just like, is the population you're looking for there? But in general, what I would say is that we have found that cities with larger populations, people tend to be pickier in. And so that's not even necessarily about how hard in general is the city. It's more that when you live in a city with many options, it makes you become pickier. It makes you feel like you have unlimited choices and then it can be harder for people to commit. And so that's something that people can at least in their own dating lives, um, exert some influence on and say, am I rejecting this person because I just think that somebody better will be out there? And instead, instead, can I look at the person in front of me and say, um, this is a great person, I'm going to give them a chance and I'm going to build something with them. And so instead of kind of blaming your city, can you actually look within yourself and say, what can I do to uh, really build the relationship of my dreams instead of just trying to find the perfect person? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I feel slightly validated in all my years complaining about New York, but then at the same time, you know, that was me. I was, until I started going on more proactive dates for this podcast, actually, I was being picky and I didn't, um, I didn't see it that way uh, for a long time. Yeah, absolutely something that happens in New York dating. Yeah. Um, okay, shall we do, let's do one about second dates. This one's a little bit longer. Sure. Um, okay. Sure. So this is a question we got from a listener that I think you'll have very, you know, I think you have frameworks in the book that apply directly, but I think you'll have great insights on. So she writes, I was wondering if maybe you could talk about second dates, like what's a good activity to do on a second date? And above all, how do you pick who to go on a second date with and who not to give a second chance? And this is to us, Logan. So she says, I think you and Liza sometimes said to always go on a second date if you're considering it, if the date was all right. I'm sure I paraphrased that wrong, but that's how I've interpreted what you've said. However, as you two have also said, most dates are fine. Like most people are pleasant to talk to and seem okay, like okay people. So in theory, I could consider going on second dates with most of the people I go on first dates with, but I don't have the time or energy. So how does one choose who gets a second shot and who doesn't if they're all basically the same level of fine, funny, cute, good person? And how many dates should one give a person? Um, I think, you know, looking to give you a little context, we've we've often just talked about how, you know, we ask people about their worst first dates a lot, but we've tried to reframe our our conversation around that because so many dates can feel just kind of in between but we don't think that's a bad sign very aligned with what you put into much more eloquent words in your book um but yeah what are your thoughts I I mean we know your thoughts on second dates but can you dive into this question a little bit more like how do you make that when do you not go on the second date yeah I think this is a really poignant question and something that a lot of people have asked me about based on what I say in the book which is that you should make the second date the default yeah and so people really understand if the first date's really bad, if they insult you, if you feel unsafe, of course you shouldn't go out with them again. And if the date is awesome, obviously you're both saying yes to the second date. 
And so there's that huge area in between where what do you do? Mm -hmm. And so my philosophy on this goes back to the idea of fuck the spark and that many times we're just saying no to somebody because we don't feel the spark. And I understand that the listener question is saying, well, okay, if it's just fine, there's no spark, but it's not horrible, what do I do? And so reading between the lines or listening between the lines on that question, I feel like this person's actually going on a lot of monotonous dates that all feel the same. And it's like, I go out, it's fine, we make small talk, it's not terrible, but nobody really stands out and I can't go on second dates with all these people. And so I wonder what are the things that she can actually, I'm assuming this is she, what is the thing that this person can actually play around with? And it's, can you go on dates that are a lot more fun? Can you add an element of play? Can you add an element of adventure? Maybe you're going on three dates a week that are all grabbing wine at your local wine bar and they actually bleed into each other and you can barely tell the difference from one date to the next. And can you go on fewer, better dates? Can you go on dates where you play tennis and then grab a smoothie? Can you go for a hike? Can you meet up in the park and play bananagrams? And I think the more that this person can actually relax and have an experience and get to know those other people, it will be more obvious who this person is really connecting with. And so I still think that if somebody asks you out for a second date, or if you feel curious about them, or you feel like there's something more, there's a lot that can be learned from a second date. People relax more and that's how you find a slow burn. But really based on sort of the blah nature of, of the underlying thing that I'm hearing in this question is dating feels very blah. It feels like work when everything is just sort of gray. How do I get excited about ever, anyone or, or how do I move forward? And so I would say to this person, whether it's your mindset, whether it's the date itself, whether it's the conversation or the things you do, how can you actually impact the date so that the really great people stand out, you are your best self, and it becomes more obvious who's worth investing in for the future. Yeah. I mean, we're uh, totally aligned. I feel like I my relationship right now, like so the first date was good. It wasn't the best first date I've ever been on. And just that second date, you actually get to know someone too. And um, yeah, but the decision is hard. Uh, Yeah. Should we do one more? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay, here's the con. Okay, so here's a, a question from another listener. Here's the context. I've been with my boyfriend over 1.5 years. We live in X country uh, in Asia. I won't say the specific. And met here. He's British and I'm American. I'm 26 and he's 25. He was literally my first Tinder date when I moved here. And even though we've been moving very slowly, didn't say I love you until our one year anniversary. It's always felt very right. We're good at communication and very much love each other. Uh, love each other. This is the first real relationship for both of us. When I got home last, basically out of the blue, he said he was having really big relationship doubts and anxiety. He said the main thing is that it freaks him out that he could potentially never be on his own again and not even in being like never single and sleeping with other people, just that he's always enjoyed being on his own. I was like, well, I don't know if this is forever either. I'm not asking you to move in with me or marry and have babies with me. And I'm okay with the fact that not all relationships will be forever, but I don't think ours has reached an end. And he says he logically knows that, but he can't stop fixating, spiraling. There's also factors from work and living in this country. He's pretty burnt out from work, but his job ends soon and he's going home to England for three weeks. He said he's scared that when he gets there, he'll want to stay. 
despite all this, he was very firm. He loves me and loves being with me. Uh, he's Our listener has said she's willing to move to England. I'm summarizing a little bit. Um, so, yeah, she just wants to know, you know, what's the what's the right path forward here? What do these signs mean and how do they work through it? Yeah, so first of all, what I hear at the beginning of this note is that actually the relationship generally feels very functional. This person feels happy. Um, they're good communicators and that in general, the relationship's been working well, right? And so I'm listening for, oh, we've been having trouble for a while. And so what this sounds like is that they are progressing. They're reaching this relationship milestone and her partner is experiencing some cold feet. And so I don't know uh, if this person's familiar with attachment theory, but basically when somebody is avoidant attached, they can feel smothered, they can feel nervous about losing their independence. And so it sounds like her partner might be securely attached or anxiously attached, but in this situation, that person is being triggered and feeling avoidant attached and feeling like, I I can't imagine um, being with you forever. And if you're my partner in this way, then I'll never be alone again. And being alone is an important part of my identity. And so that person's experiencing a lot of feelings of what do I lose in myself when we are in this serious committed relationship for a long time. And so my advice would be to continue having conversations about it, but really call it what it is, which is to say, it's completely normal to go from being a solo person to being part of a couple and feeling like that's weird. Or let's just call out, what are the things about your identity that you're afraid of losing? Oh, um, I still wanna have my Saturday with my friends where we watch this type of sport. Or I want to have, I still want my career to be really important to me and I want you to understand that. So really going deep and saying, these are the parts of myself that I don't want to lose and having conversations around how that can fit within the relationship. That's the best way to understand. Is this person just feeling fearful and can that be overcome? Or is there actually a fundamental disconnect in the relationship and should it end? Yeah, I mean, it's great advice. It sounds like, so uh, spoiler alert, we, we, included this after getting an update um and oh nice yeah so we can share the update but i think it's like sure. very much to the advice that you just shared we were able to oh, work so through the intense anxiety spiral he had he said the way i reacted basically just listening not freaking out then talking him through all of his doubts was really helpful and made him realize he just dug himself into a pit of anxiety not entirely based in reality so we're communicating happy and love so I think like the communicating and calling certain things out specifically I don't know I've been in a relationship for like almost four years now and sometimes you just I don't know if you know sometimes I just get caught in patterns where you know I don't want to communicate all the way because it feels hard around certain things like this and I definitely struggled with like losing my sense of independence earlier in this relationship so I think that kind of actually putting words around some of these fears is is really helpful um yeah I love that and I'm so happy to hear the update and the fact that this person understands it had to do with their partner's individual anxiety and not actually a disconnect in the relationship and it just I feel like for anyone listening, this is a great example of saying, it's not that you won't experience fear. It's not that you won't have moments where you're on different pages, but can you talk through it and understand what's happening and not either jump into it without having those conversations, in which case resentment can build up or um, running away from the problem and not actually exploring what's going on. Yeah, totally. So mature for, for 
25 and oh, yeah. 26. I agree. Oh, I'm like, I agree. I'm wish yeah. I had that skill at 26. Uh, totally. So as kind of a wrap up, uh, do you, this is a very, very broad question, but if you could like wave a magic wand and change anything about dating in our day, age, society, et cetera, what would it be? Mm, I love that. Um, let's see. How can I choose just fine? <laughs> Something that we just talked about, about making dates more fun. So really helping people get out of this rut of these dates that feel like job interviews, these dates that are very dry and repetitive and interchangeable. So just I would really encourage people to go on dates that they're actually looking forward to and that they have a better chance of enjoying. Another thing I hear often is people who say, oh, I'm just not attracted to anyone. And so really what can people do within themselves to invest in um, feeling attracted to people in really embracing their sexuality and understanding this is what makes me feel good. This is how I can increase my kind of feeling of erotic energy before a date. Really what can people do to increase the desire within themselves so that they when when they go on dates they're more likely to feel attracted to someone and then finally a lot of people just have this decision paralysis where they expect oh everything's going to be um easy and if it's the right person then i'll know and if it's meant to be then i won't have any question and just helping people understand that at the end of the day committing to somebody is a huge leap of faith and that if you have questions around it that's completely normal that's not a sign that this isn't the right person for you yeah Ugh, i wish someone had told me that a long time ago <laughs> uh, it was always a really big block for me anyway logan this has been so 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 great thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us can you tell everyone where they can find you follow you buy your book everything Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So people can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Logan Yuri. People can go to my website, loganyuri.com and take the three dating tendencies quiz or email me about individual coaching. And of course, people can find my book, How to Not Die Alone, anywhere where great books are sold. Yeah. Logan, thank you so much. This was truly of a course. treat and we really appreciate you. Yay. Thank you for, yeah. Thank you for asking great questions and obviously knowing my my work so well and you know thanks for doing everything that you do